0: The scripture passage from today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, for reading so well and leading us in worship. And uh, Sam, thank you for doing such a good job this morning. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Z. I'm the pastor here at One Covenant Church. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we seek God's help to understand his most holy word this morning? Father, thank you so much that this is your word. We pray that you'd send your spirit right now to take your word and write it upon our hearts. Change us as we come face to face with you through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My well, friends, I've been reading through a book called Forgive by Timothy Keller. I'm about three quarters of the way through and i really like to recommend this book. It's been so helpful uh, to me. And in reading of this book, uh, one of the things that I found very curious as I was reading it is that Tim Keller points out That when Christians today talk about forgiveness or the importance of forgiveness, some people will think we're living in the past. Why? You see, some modern thinkers like Friedrich Nietzsche, they've argued that things like guilt and shame, they're merely the moral reflexes that come about because we believe in religion and God. So without religion and God, there wouldn't be the moral reflex to make us feel guilt and shame the sense that we've done something wrong and need to make amends, the sense that we are not okay, that there's, there's a need for redemption, there's a need of restoration. Nietzsche would say that these are simply social constructs. These are simply things that come about because you believe that there is a God who is holy and that you believe in religion. And so Nietzsche would say, as belief in God declines because God is dead, our experience of guilt and shame would also decline across society. So Nietzsche actually looked forward to a day where society would become guilt-free. There would be no shame, there would be no guilt, because we no longer believe in God, and we no longer believe in religion. The problem is, this hasn't quite happened. You just look at life today, and we're not just talking about the church, we're talking about life in general, and you know that guilt and shame persist in our society and in our culture. Look at the number of books that have been written about shame. Brene Brown, for example, over the last two decades has written so many books on shame. So many millions of people listen to her to try to make sense of their shame. And if you're on social media, you'll know that guilt and shame are everywhere. I just saw on social media this morning that there's someone who wants to call out organizations and businesses that still use cash. And what does he say? We need to name them, and we need to shame them. The cancel culture that we're experiencing today is a culture of shame. You've done something that society as a whole does not appreciate, and you should be canceled. You should be shamed. Shame is everywhere. A little bit more benign, but no less stressful is guilt. Now on social media, you know all the things that your friends are doing. I know, for example, my pastor friends in America and Australia, the things they're doing in their churches, the books they're reading, and this guy that reads like 100 books a year. And I look at that, and I feel, oh my goodness, I'm falling behind. I've only read like five books so far. Actually, I haven't even read five books. right? (laughs) You feel like you fall behind. Because of social media, shame and guilt have not abated, they have only intensified. In fact, friends, an American historian by the name of Wilfred McClay, he wrote a very interesting essay called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And in this essay, he says, guilt has not merely lingered. It has grown. It has even metastasized into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in life. Now, Tim Keller points out that modern society, we may not like to use words like guilt and shame, but there are so many other common terms that have become so common to our modern lexicon that basically map onto guilt and shame. We speak about having low self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, poor body image, self-loathing, and self-harm. Friends, all of these things, all of these experiences are expressions of guilt and shame. We are not okay, and something needs to happen for us to become okay. Something needs to be fixed in our lives. Now, Wilfred MacLeod went on to say this. There is a pervasive need to find innocence through moral absolution and somehow discharge one's moral burden. In other words, even if you try to put God out of the picture and religion out of the picture, there is a longing in every heart to be put right. Every single person feels that there's something not right about who they are and what they have done, and something needs to be done to be put right. In other words, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, there is a longing for some kind of redemption in your soul and in your being. Now, why is that, friends? Well, friends, because guilt and shame are not merely subjective constructs. Guilt and shame are objective realities because God himself is an objective reality. Now, on one hand, that might sound like really bad news, that God is real. He is not make-believe. He holds us to account. But on the other hand, because God is an objective reality, it means that there is an objective path to redemption. There is an objective path out of our guilt and out of our shame. God has done something decisively in Jesus Christ to deal with guilt and shame. William McClay will say this, he says, you know, when you reject God and religion, it doesn't do away with guilt and shame. You still experience guilt, you still experience shame. But when you do away with God and religion, what you do away with are the conventional means of finding absolution. So what we have in society now is people who experience guilt and shame, but have no way of dealing with that guilt and shame. It's a terrible place to be. But friends, when we recognize that guilt and shame are objective and real, because God is objective and real, we can then be sure that we do not need to wallow in our guilt and shame. There is a path, a decisive and objective and real path, out of our guilt and out of our shame. God has done something in Jesus Christ to give us not just a story of redemption, but a song of redemption. And that is what we see here. In verses 57 to 80 in Luke's gospel chapter 1. it's a story and a song of redemption if you've been with us over the last few weeks you'll know that this story here is a sequel to what happened in verses 5 to 25. it's a story of a man called zachariah who has failed so very badly if you remember a few weeks ago zachariah was a priest he was a very pious man He was well taught in the Holy Scriptures. He was selected to be the representative of God's people, to enter into the temple to pray for God's people. In that holy place, an angel appears and speaks to him and brings him a message from God. The angel says to him, Although you are old and your wife Elizabeth is beyond the age of childbearing, by God's power you will have a son, and his name shall be called John. Now, friends, if anyone at all in the Gospel of Luke should have responded in faith, it should have been Zechariah. He's well taught in the Holy Scriptures. He's a priest. He's a pious man. But instead of responding in faith, he responds in unbelief. He says, how can it be? How can it be? Of course it can be. God is mighty and powerful. He responds in unbelief. And as a result... Verse 5 to 25 tells us that God disciplined him. He was struck silent and unable to speak for nine months until his son John was born. Can you imagine, friends, Zechariah in those nine months not being able to speak, continuously pondering what he had done? Can you imagine the guilt? Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine him kicking himself, thinking, I should have responded in faith. Surely I should have responded in faith. And now I'm being punished for my unbelief. But friends, in spite of being punished for his unbelief, God used that experience to bring him to redemption, to restore him and make him the man that he's supposed to be. You see, friends, in verses 57 to 66, we pick up the story again. And it's a story of how Zechariah is redeemed from all that he has done wrong. Then from fifth, verses 67 to 79, we have his song of redemption. In response to all that God has done in redeeming him, Zechariah now sings a song of a greater redemption. This song has become known as the Benedictus, which means blessing or praising. And it's taken from verse 58. The title is taken from verse 68, the opening lines of the song. Look at verse 68. Zechariah sings this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Friends, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that this story of redemption and this song of redemption can be yours too. So let's look at this passage in three parts. The path of redemption, the promise of redemption, and the purpose of redemption. The path, the promise, and the purpose. Come with me to verse 57. So friends, Just as the angel gabriel had said elizabeth gives birth to a son in her old age verse 58 tells us that their neighbors and relatives rejoiced with her they recognized the tender mercy of god in their lives now this was a jewish community they were very communal people so according to jewish custom verse 59 the boy would be circumcised on the eighth day it was a large group of people that came around for this great ceremony he would receive the sign of the old covenant We're told that this was also the day that he would receive his name. Now, friends, according to Jewish custom, the boy should have been named after his father or his grandfather, which is why verse 59 tells us that he wanted to name him Zechariah. That would have been custom. That would have been convention. That would have been the natural thing to do. But in verse 60, we see a twist in the story. Elizabeth, his mother, insisted that he be named John. John is not a name that was familiar to this family. None of their relatives were named John. But this was the name that the angel had given to Zechariah, and Zechariah had somehow communicated to his wife, Elizabeth. This was the name that God had chosen for this child, even though it went against nature, it went against convention, and it went against custom. Surely, surely this would be not be so. The relatives were incredulous, and so they turned away from Elizabeth to Zechariah in verse 62. Zechariah, surely you would have wanted to name your son Zechariah, but what does Zechariah do in verse 63? It says he wrote on a tablet, he could not speak, he was struck silent, and on the tablet he wrote the words, his name is John. Now friends, the way this is phrased Zechariah isn't making a suggestion. He's not even saying, let's call him John. He's saying his name is John. His name is already John. Friends, do you see the stark contrast between what happened here and what happened when Zechariah first met the angel Gabriel? When the angel Gabriel first met with Zechariah and said, you have a son, he said, how can this be? Now, when they come to him and say, what shall we name your son? He responds, His name is John, in obedience to all that the angel has said, in obedience to the message that God had given to him. This shows us, friends, that in the nine months of silence, Zechariah had come to a place where he truly believed what was spoken to him by God, and he's expressing that belief in obedience. Friends, the only way you will truly know if you believe is if you obey obedience does not guarantee your faith but it is evidence of your faith and by saying his name is john zechariah is showing us that he has faith he has believed in god and believed in the word of god and the evidence and outworking of that belief and faith is obedience his name Is John and so verse 64 it says immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed immediately the curse of silence was broken and Zechariah had been restored Zechariah had been redeemed all that he had done wrong was now accounted for and he was right before God and right before neighbor and right before himself Verse 65-66 shows us the response of the neighbors and the crowd. They were filled with fear and wonder. And they recognized that this child, so specially named, was like no other. Look at verse 66. They recognized that the hand of the Lord was with him. Against custom, against convention, against nature, this child's name would be John. My friends, what do we learn from this encounter? We learn, friends, that redemption being set right, being cleared of guilt and being covered of shame is not something we can do for ourselves. It's something that God must do for us. It does not come simply by following our custom and convention. In fact, it often goes against our custom and convention. You cannot work or earn your redemption. You cannot work or earn your way to have your guilt cleared and your shame covered. It must be done for you. My friends, think think along with me. If if you struggle with low self-esteem or self-loathing, if you look in the mirror and you tell yourself, you're awesome, you're enough, you're great, go get them. I know some of you do that. Okay? I do that, too, once in a while. Okay. What does that do for you? On the one hand, it gets you motivated maybe to get across a certain hump, right? But by doing that, it's kind of like own self-check, own self. Right? You are a gauge of yourself, okay? And you're already doubting yourself. So after a while, you come away thinking, am I really enough? Am I really awesome? You see, friends, you cannot tell yourself you're awesome. You cannot tell yourself you're great, you're magnificent. It might get you over a hump, but it doesn't really last. Friends, you need someone else. You need someone outside of yourself who knows you, who cares about you, to say to you, you're awesome. You're enough. That's what you need. And similarly, friends, with our guilt and our shame, it's an offense against God. And therefore, there is nothing we can do to be cleared of our own guilt and to cover our own shame. There's nothing we can do to make things right with God. God himself must do it. God himself is clear us of our guilt, and God himself must cover our shame. That is the path to redemption, friends. Not going by custom and convention and what you do. But by simply believing God at His Word and obeying that Word out of delight in what He has done. And, friends, that is the path to redemption. Not working harder, not doing more, not trying more, but believing God at His Word and obeying His Word, trusting that He is the one that will cover you and He is the one who will clear your guilt. And friends, this path to redemption is sure and certain because it is anchored in God's own promise of redemption. Come with me to verses 69 and 70. In verses 69 and 70, Zechariah says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zechariah is saying that God has raised up someone, a horn of salvation for us. This person is going to come and save us. Now, what is this horn of salvation? You see, friends, in the Old Testament, the horn symbolized the animal's strength. So what Zechariah is saying here is that God is raising up a mighty Savior who will redeem. He's raising up a mighty Savior who is the Redeemer. And this Redeemer will be from the house of David. He will be a descendant of David and will be according to what God's holy prophets have said, they have predicted that this holy redeemer, this mighty redeemer, would come. He would be a descendant of Israel's greatest king, David. Who is this? Well, friends, you see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had made a covenant with King David. God had promised David that he would raise up for him an offspring of his to be a king. And not only would he be a king, he would be a king... With an eternal kingdom and this promise friends is fulfilled eight centuries later in the birth of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenant with David he's the king who has an eternal kingdom he's the mighty Savior who is a descendant of David prophesied by the holy prophets who has come to save and redeem God's people God's promise of redemption is anchored in God's promise to David more than eight centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ. My friends, Zechariah goes back even further. Look at verses 72 and 73. He says, God did this to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. What's he doing? Once again, Luke is taking us back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. You can read about that covenant in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And he's telling us that the birth of Jesus Christ will be a fulfillment of God's promises and God's covenant, not just with David, but with Abraham. You see, friends, when God made a promise to Abraham, and God made a covenant with Abraham, It was nothing short of a promise of redemption. It was nothing short of a promise to clear guilt and cover shame. It was nothing short of a promise to restore all that was broken. Remember, friends, one of the key aspects of the covenant that God made with Abraham, one of the key promises is that God would bless him and his descendants. And his descendants would in turn become a blessing to the nations of the world. God was promising blessing to Abraham and through Abraham to the world. Now friends, this takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, God had made the world and it was good, it was perfect, it was blessed. It was a blessed creation where people lived under the rule and the blessing of God. But what happened in Genesis 3 when humanity rebelled against God and his rightful rule was that we exchanged the blessing of God for a curse and so when God raises up this patriarch Abraham and says to him I will bless you and your descendants and through your descendants the nations of the world will be blessed he is promising nothing short nothing shorter than the reversal of the fall of Genesis 3. it's a promise of redemption and this promise friends is fulfilled In the birth of our savior jesus christ because all who believe in christ the curse of sin is broken because christ bore that curse died in our place and what flows from him to us is the blessing of god so friends the redemption of god his clearing of our guilt and his covering of our shame is firmly anchored in his ancient covenant promises made long before we even existed. Friends, why is it important for us to know that? Why is it important for us to know that God's plan to redeem is actually anchored in his promise to redeem? Well, friends, because there's going to be times where things will look very bleak. There are going to be times when you feel like you can't hold things together. There are going to be times when you feel like you cannot see the end of the tunnel There are going to be times when you lose confidence in yourself. But even in those times, when we know that our redemption is anchored in God's ancient promise, we might not have confidence in ourselves, but we can continue to have confidence in God and in His work in our lives. Why is that, friends? You see, friends, because God's path of redemption is anchored in his promise to redeem, God must redeem. Why do I say that? When he has made a promise to Abraham, I will do this, and he has made a promise to David, and he says, I will do this, what is God doing? God is staking his entire character and his power on that promise. If God were to break that promise, if God were not to keep his promise, God would not be God. But because he is holy, he is righteous, and he is mighty, and he is powerful, he will indeed fulfill his promise to redeem a people for himself. That is how sure and that is how sturdy our redemption is. God has stepped out and laid his character and his person on the line when he has made a promise of redemption. And that is what we need to know, friends. When you lose confidence in yourselves, you can continue to have confidence in God because it is he who redeems, it is he who has promised, and he who has promised is faithful. He will surely do it. God's work to redeem you is not dependent on your strength not even on your character. It's dependent on his strength, and his character. And that is why we need to know, friends, that this path of redemption is firmly anchored in his promise to redeem. But friends, why? Why does God redeem? What's the purpose of redemption? What's the purpose of him setting us right, clearing our guilt, and covering our shame? Why does he do it at all? Well, friends, Zechariah's song Gives us three reasons. God's purpose of redemption, he does it for the sake of freedom, for the sake of service, and for the sake of forgiveness. For the sake of freedom, for the sake of service, and for the sake of forgiveness. Let's look at the first one, for the sake of freedom. Look at verse 69. The word of God says that God has raised up a horn of salvation, a mighty savior, a strong savior. And what will he do? Look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. God redeems his people to set them free, to set them free from the powerful forces that enslave and oppress them. Whether those forces be the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians in the Old Testament, the romans in the new testament god redeems to set his people free from enslaving and oppressive forces god redeems friends to set you free from oppressive and enslaving forces but secondly it's for service look at verse 74 He says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. In the book of Exodus that we studied a few months ago, we saw that God redeems a people for Himself. And He redeems a people to make them His own to serve and worship Him. You see, friends, they were slaves in Egypt. And while they were slaves in Egypt, they were serving a cruel Egyptian overlord. But when god redeems them and saves them and brings them to himself they now get to serve a king who is merciful and kind and good friends we always we will always be serving something or someone what god offers us in the gospel of jesus christ is a service that brings life it's a service that brings flourishing we're saved and redeemed In order that the true king of the world might be our king and we might serve him for our good and for the good of the world he redeems us friends not so we can sit around waiting for heaven he redeems us friends to make us truly useful to himself and to the world that he loves he redeems for the sake of freedom he redeems for the sake of service but finally He redeems for the sake of forgiveness. After speaking about Jesus, in verses 76 to 77, Zechariah now changes his focus and speaks about his son who is about to be born, who, who has just been born. He focuses on John. Look at verse 76. He says to John, he says that John will be the prophet of the Most High who will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, did you ever wonder why Jesus, the Son of God, needs someone to prepare his way? Why does Jesus need a forerunner if he is God himself, a mighty God? Well, friends, in a sense, Jesus didn't need the forerunner. The ones who really needed the forerunner were God's own people. The ones who needed the forerunner are you and me. Why, friends? Well, friends, because in every generation, God's people are mistaken about the nature of redemption. In every generation, we tend to think that our greatest problem is something political, or economic, or social, or financial, or relational. We tend to think that those are our biggest problems. In John's day, when they were praying for the redemption of Israel and the consolation of the people of God, what were they praying for? They were praying for self-governance. You see, at that point in time, they did not have self-governance. They were ruled by the Romans. And so when they prayed for redemption, they were praying that God would conquer the Romans and establish them for self-governance. That, they thought, was their biggest problem. Think along with me right now, friends. What do you think is the biggest problem in your life? What are you praying that God would do for you? Or maybe if you don't pray very much, what would you like to pray for God to do for you? What is on the top of your priority list? Is it financial? Is it relational? Is it political? Is it economic? What is it, friends? Hold that thought for a moment. Now, I'm not saying that those things are not important. They are very important. But by the coming of John, the people of God are made to see the problem underneath the problem. they have made to see the root of all of their problems. And that problem is the problem of sin. Look at verse 47. It says, John came to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Friends, why is there political, economic, social, relational, and financial brokenness in this world? Because in Genesis 3, humanity lifted up our fist against Almighty God. And we said we will choose our own way. And by doing that, we break our relationship with God. And you continue to do that, friends, when you live your life in a way that's contrary to the word of God. And because our relationship with Almighty God is broken, every other relationship in life is also broken. Our relationship with one another, our relationship with the planet, our relationship with the world, all of it is broken. At the root of all of our issues, political, economic, and social, is a broken relationship with Almighty God. It's the problem of sin. And what by the sending of John, God gets to the heart of the problem and the heart of the issue. You see, friends, whatever you think your greatest problem is, what you most need is a right relationship with God. What you most need is to have your sins forgiven and your heart changed. What you most need, friends, Is not political, economic, and social reform important as those things are, what you most need is a renovation of the heart from which all these reforms will flow. British theologian Michael Wilcock puts it this way, Christians in every age have believed that it is the will and plan of God for all relationships, political as well as spiritual, eventually to be put right. We include, therefore, in our preaching of salvation the need for the righting of wrong social structures and physical conditions. But, he goes on to say, we keep at its center the need for the cleansing of sinful human hearts. That is where the revolution has to begin. You see, friends, Zechariah could be freed from the curse of silence and forgiven for his unbelief Because he would be forgiven of his sins. The one that he is speaking about in this song, three decades later, would die on the cross for Zechariah's unbelief and Zechariah's sin. Zechariah would be forgiven, and as one who is forgiven, he can then freely serve and tell and sing of this great salvation friends did you notice that the mercy of god is in the beginning the middle and at the end of this passage look at verse 58 her neighbors and relatives heard that the lord had shown great mercy to her look at verse 71 and 72 we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promise to our fathers and finally, verse 77 and 78, God gives knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Zechariah can be redeemed because God is merciful. And you and I, friends, can also be redeemed because that same God is merciful to us. It's even though... You and i are truly guilty as charged at the cross jesus became the guilty one for you at the cross he died for you and as he died for you he clears you of your guilt and he covers you of your shame by being shamed for you even though you are guilty And that, my friends, is the extent of Jesus' love for you. Even though you're guilty and you should be condemned, he turns to you and he looks at you. He doesn't excuse you, but he says, excuse your sin, but he says, you are my child and I've given my life for you. I've cleared your guilt. I've covered your shame. And friends, when sinners like us increasingly ponder that love, and when that kind of love becomes more and more and more real and tangible to our hearts, surely, maybe slowly, All of that low self esteem, all of that sense of inadequacy, all of that self loathing, perhaps even all of that self harm, will eventually fade away in the light of His glory, His grace, and His love. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would take your word and write it upon our hearts as we sing to you. Amen.